0: Amen. If you would, please take a copy of God's Word this morning and open it up to the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 3. As we continue our study through the book of Galatians, as we discover the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, enjoyed our worship this morning, how true it is that God is mighty to save, when we truly understand and lay hold of and really grasp that salvation is a work of God. Only God can provide us with salvation. We can never save ourselves. When you think of salvation from God's perspective and provision, God the Father, by His grace, provides us with salvation. If it were not for Him providing us with salvation, we would not have any chance or any hope. So the Father, by His grace, provides us with salvation. God the Son, Jesus Christ, died and purchased our salvation. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And God the Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us to live the Christian life. Do you remember last Sunday I shared with us that you can take the book of Galatians and divide it into three divisions. The first divisions, chapters 1 and 2, are very personal. Paul is writing to the Christians in Galatia who have turned. They've shifted. And they were no longer uh, just enjoying the grace of God. They were trying to do some sort of work to earn God's favor, and so Paul is writing them to correct an error because false teachers had come in. These false teachers called Judaizers had come in behind Paul and they were perverting the gospel of God's grace, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any person boast. And so Paul is writing this letter really to correct error in the church. These were Christians. These were men and women who had put their faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they were being duped, they were being deceived. Paul said they were bewitched as though somebody put a spell on them that they were turning so quickly away from Christ and they were trying to somehow gain acceptance acceptance by God through some work performance that they were doing. And so chapters 1 and 2 are personal personal chapters 3 and 4 are very doctrinal. There's a lot of deep deep teaching in chapters 3 and 4. And then you get the chapters 5 and 6, and Paul is just unpacking everything, and it's very applicable, very practical, as we see the beautiful freedom that we have in Christ. Not a freedom to sin, but a freedom from sin, and how we are to use our freedom. Uh, Paul spells that out in the last two chapters of Galatians. But before we get to the practical stuff, we have to really kind of have a really deep foundation that we can build upon. And so we have to spend some time in chapters 3 and 4 as Paul is really making a clear-cut case that we are saved by, by faith, not of works. In fact, if you remember at the end of chapter 2, I asked you guys to commit this verse to memory because it's so powerful and it's one of these verses that, man, we should, we should just be able to recall it, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, Paul says, but Christ lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died in vain. And so that's his opening argument as he begins to just unpack all of this in chapters 3 and 4. Last Sunday we talked about how how do we receive the Holy Spirit. He uses the Holy Spirit as an example that we're, we're saved by faith because we received the Holy Spirit by faith. And, and this whole Christian life is, is, is it's about being born again, as Jesus would say. Well, then how then is one born again, Nicodemus would ask. Remember Nicodemus, the religious leader? The one who knew the scriptures? The one who knew God? Jesus and Nicodemus has a dialogue, and Nicodemus asks the question, how, how then can one be born again? Can a person enter into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus says, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so we see how vital it is for the Holy Spirit to produce within us the Christian life. And then the question uh, that that we must ponder and answer is, then, well, how, how then do we receive the Holy Spirit? And Paul says, well, did you receive the Holy Spirit by works? No, I don't think so. You received it by faith. And then Paul goes on to say, are you being made perfect? Are you being, are you, are you maturing as a Christian because you're doing all these works or is it by faith? Well, obviously the answer to that question is by faith. And so Paul is just really laying a firm foundation that we are saved by grace through what? Faith. Everybody say that. Faith. Faith. We need to understand that. Because I believe legalism, when you, when you take the, the contrast between uh, grace and legalism, when you look at that, legalism appeals to the flesh. Legalism says, you know, I want to do something. I feel like I need to do something. There is this this desire within us to to do something in order to earn God's favor, in order to be made right with God, in order to have God pat us on the back and say, man, you did a great job. You did an excellent job. And so legalism appeals to the flesh because it feels as though we're doing something that is commendable. We're doing something that is praiseworthy. And our flesh just eats that up. Legalism appeals to that. Where grace, grace is humbling. Grace is realizing, guess what? I don't deserve this. I've done nothing to earn this. It's only by God's grace. His good character, His loving nature, who He is as a merciful, loving Savior that He's provided me The vilest, the worst, the chief sinner, God has provided me with salvation. Who am I? You see, grace humbles us. It brings us to that state where we realize, man, without God, without God, we're nothing. Without without His love, without His grace, man, we have nothing. And so, Paul says, he, he, he builds his, his opening uh, argument, his opening statement by saying, look, if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died in vain. And Then Galatians chapter three, verse one, Paul says, "O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. What Paul is saying is, listen, man, you, you, as, as, as it is as though somebody has painted a picture for you. I mean, the death of Jesus Christ was so clear to you. Then Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, legalism appeals to the flesh, but grace, grace humbles us. And Paul says, listen, if I'm going to boast, if I'm going to be braggadocious, if I'm going to shout very loud the accolades, it's going to be about what Christ has done for me. It's about the cross of Christ, not what what." Think about it, Paul. Here's Paul. God did an incredible work in his life. Talk about transformation. Talk about a total 180 degree U turn. It's Paul. I mean, Paul was Saul, and Saul was out to stop Christianity. He wanted nothing to do with Christ. He wanted to stop the spread of Christianity. The last thing Paul wanted to do as Saul was to start churches. I'm sure that was the furthest thing from his mind, is church planning for Jesus. But God got a hold of his life and transformed him. And so Paul says, listen... Now, here's somebody who could brag. Here's somebody who had the accolades. Here's somebody, uh, and, and there are times in his testimonies where it sounds like he's bragging, but really he's just giving God the praise in all of this. But here's somebody who, 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 could have, who could have bragged, but he says, listen, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about the cross of Christ for whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The word crucified means to put... Someone to death by nailing them or binding them to a cross. This morning, I want to discuss this question. Why? Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Why a cross? I mean, there are other ways that one could have been executed. Not simply by a cross, they could have been beheaded They could have hung them, they could have stoned them, they could have used a guillotine, firing squad, lethal injection. There are numerous ways that an individual could be executed, electric chair, right? But why a cross? Why did Jesus have to die on this instrument of death and not some other way? What we need to understand is that everything God does, God has a plan in mind. God does everything with a purpose. And if you were to say, well, you know, uh, Jesus had to die on the cross because that was, you know, the Roman way of execution. Well, I would then ask the question, why did the Romans at this time in history have execution by crucifixion? Again, there was other ways to execute... Somebody, to execute a criminal. Why the cross? Why in this particular time in history did the Romans use crucifixion? I like what one commentary says. The commentator says, Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain. It was one of the most disgraceful and cruel methods of execution and usually reserved only for slaves, foreigners, revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. And so we understand that the the Romans did not invent crucifixion. They, They perfected it. And for them, it was a slow and agonizing, painful way to die. Well, I would propose to us this morning that Jesus, the Messiah, could not have died any other way than by crucifixion. Not by stoning, not by hangman's noose, not by electric chair, not by a firing squad, only by execution or by crucifixion. Notice, uh, look at chapter, chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, the law doesn't bring blessing, it brings a curse. And the curse is that if if we're try, if we're going to try to work our way into heaven, if we're going to try to work and earn God's favor, we have to keep the law perfectly all the time. 100%. Now, I know some people say, well, okay, from here on out, from this point on, you know, I'm going to, you know, have a new slate, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, and this point on I'm going to keep the law perfectly all the time. That's great. However, You've got a past, and God's going to take your past in consideration. And so the only way that we could live perfectly under the law is from the very beginning, from conception, to be able to do everything that the law commands. However, what we need to understand is that our sin nature will dictate something otherwise. That by nature, we're drawn to sin. By nature, we're drawn to disobey God. By nature, we're drawn to rebel against God. By nature, we're proud and boastful. By nature, we're going to thumb our nose up at God and say, God, thanks, thanks, but no thanks. I've got it from here. I don't want to live under your rules. I don't want to live under your regulations. I don't want to do these things, and I don't want to stop doing these things. I've got it from here, God. And the problem is, is there, there's our flesh. Our flesh elevates itself. I want to feel good. I want to accomplish this on my own. But see, the problem is, is that brings a curse. The law doesn't bring life. It condemns us to death. It definitely doesn't liberate us. It enslaves us. Verse 11 Paul says, but that no one is justified. There's that word we've been unpacking uh, slowly but surely throughout this series. Justified means to be declared righteous. Right? So no one can stand before God and be declared righteous or justified by the law, and the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live how? By faith. In fact, it, 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 you know, if, if you're able to do this on your smart device or if, you, if you're old school and you have a printed copy of God's Word, every time we come to buy faith, you see faith or whatever, just circle it as we go through Galatians because that, that's, that's the key that Paul is really trying to produce here within us is that we understand that we as Christians are to live our life by faith, by faith. Verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law... Having become a curse for us, for it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now this verse, verse 13, is, is my focal verse this morning. This is the verse that we're really going to kind of unpack this morning, uh, where Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Remember, we, we all stand cursed under the law. The law doesn't bring blessing. It doesn't bring liberation. It doesn't bring freedom. It condemns us, right? It enslaves us. It brings a curse, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so the first reason why I strongly believe that it was imperative for Jesus to die on the cross is because the cross was prophesied in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. All right, We have the prophecy concerning the manner in which the Messiah would die. Die. You see, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't just something that randomly happened. That Jesus just happened to take the stage in human history in the time that he took the stage under the conditions that there were, and and that you know everything that was going. It wasn't just some some accident. God just didn't plan it or anything like that. It was just hey, that's just the way it works. It's the way the cookie crumbles, or 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 something of that nature. Where God was God was shocked. I didn't I didn't expect this to happen. No, everything that took place was happening exactly as God had ordained it, as he had planned it. So it wasn't an accident, it wasn't a coincidence that Jesus died on the cross. The cross was God's prescribed way that Jesus would die. Listen to what David says in Psalms 22. This is Old Testament now. This was hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus would be born, before uh, his, his birth, before his life, and definitely way before his, his death. Right? David says this in Psalms 22, verse 16, "...the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet." Well, obviously, David wasn't speaking in regards to himself. This, this, this wasn't in regards to David. This was a prophecy that God was speaking through David concerning the Messiah. In fact, all of chapter 22 or majority of 22, uh, chapter 22 in Psalms, is, is all of prophecy about the death of Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, the beginning of the chapter, David says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you remember on the cross Jesus uttered seven statements. The last statement in which he uttered well second to last my god my god why hast thou forsaken me. Was that a coincidence? But again If you were a student of the Old Testament, right? If you were studying the scriptures, if you were awaiting the coming of the Messiah and you were connecting the dots, you you would see how perfectly this lines up and how the dots connect and how you see that God was going to send a Savior who would suffer, one who would die for the sins of his people. That's incredible. I scratch my head. I know hindsight's 20/20. 20, 20. We, we see the totality of the scriptures and we look back and we say, "How could they miss this?" How could they How could they miss this? I mean everything from the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, man, that was all prophesied and they should have been connecting the dots and saying, "Oh my goodness, the words that he uttered on the cross, they should have rung a bell." But they didn't didn't in fact there are over a hundred prophecies just concerning the death of Jesus over a hundred every single one of them was fulfilled again if you were a student of the Old Testament if you were awaiting the coming of the Messiah, it would be so clear you would see it line up. But as we learned last week, there was a veil covering them, covering their eyes so that they can't see that. Only by God's Spirit can He re- release and reveal and remove that veil. It's what He's done for us so that we're able to connect the dots Every prophecy foretold by the prophecy, prophets literally was fulfilled. Let me give you some prophets or some prophecies. Zechariah tells us that Christ would be betrayed for thirty pieces of silver. It's interesting. Thirty pieces of silver, not twenty nine, not thirty one, not fifty, not seventy, not one hundred forty four, but thirty, and that was fulfilled. Random? I think not. Coincidence? I think not. As we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus was betrayed by Judas for that exact amount. Not a shekel more, not a shekel less, but exactly. Not a a piece more, not a piece less, Zechariah also prophesied that Christ would be forsaken by his disciples. Again, as you read the Gospels, we see all of this taking place. Remember when Jesus in the upper room said to his disciples, all of you would leave me, all of you would forsake me? Was Jesus just making you know, some random statement? No, 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 no. Again, he was revealing prophecy. That night, every single one of the disciples bailed out. It's amazing. Here's Jesus. Man, he had droves of people following him at one time, many for the wrong reason. Many because he performed some great miracles and he fed their bellies. Even his disciples, the core twelve, man, who 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 just man, they they, they did life with Jesus. Jesus got down to zero followers at one point zero. Was that coincidence? Was that a random thing? No, it was all a fulfillment of prophecy. Let me give you another one. The prophet Micah said that Christ would be beaten and scourged. Fulfilled. Check. The Old Testament's prophet said that Christ would be silent before his accuser, that he would be spat upon, that Christ would be numbered among thieves Uh, that his garments would be parted and um, uh, that he would be given vinegar to drink, that none of his bones would be broken, that he would die in shame before men. This is just a few of the prophecies concerning the death of Jesus. And every single one of them came true. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me great confidence in the Word of God. That when God says something, He means it. That God is faithful. He is faithful to perform that which He promises. That's, 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 that's the application in this. Is that when we just really realize how faithful God is to do what He's promised to do. You don't have to turn there, but kind of the beginning, well, not the beginning, because beginning of chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, Paul's talking about uh, the Holy Spirit. How did we receive the Holy Spirit? Then you get to chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, and Paul, Paul uses another example. He uses the example of Abraham, and he talks about how Abraham was, um, was made right before God, and he says it was by faith. He believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, You see, Abraham placed his faith in God, in the very words of God. Remember, if you know the story of Abraham and the covenant that God makes with Abraham, uh, we're not there yet. We get to the last part of chapter 3 where Paul uses this, this illustration, which came first, all right? The covenant made with Abraham, the promise made with Abraham, or the law. Well, that's an easy one. What came first was the promise that God made with Abraham. It was 490 years prior to the, to the, to the law that God gives through Moses. And so uh, Paul, Paul uses Abraham in the first part of chapter 3, and he's talking about how Abraham trusted God. Remember, God calls Abraham out, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, want you to look up at the sky. And as numerous as the skies are, so shall your descendants be. Through you, all nations shall be blessed. That was a prophecy concerning that God would be gracious and that he would extend his salvation, his blessing, not just to the Jewish nation, but also to Gentiles. And which we're recipients of as Gentiles. And so we can trust God that he is faithful. And so the cross is is. is Predicted. It's prophesied in Scripture. It, it was imperative that Jesus die on the cross, on this cruel uh, uh, way of death. It was all a part of God's plan. Secondly, the cross is a symbol of, of a curse. It's God's symbol of a curse. Verse 13 again. Paul says, "...Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law." Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now notice those four words. For it is written. Paul is drawing our attention to something that had been previously stated or previously said. And what Paul is talking about, he's he's, he's pointing back to the Old Testament here. Paul's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 21. So this was a quote that God gives the the, the, uh, the Jewish nation. However, it's it's more than than a law. It's the consequence of what happens when somebody commits a sin deserving of death. Right. So, this where, where Paul says, For it is written, cursed is, is uh, anyone who hangs on a tree. Paul is saying, Look, then back in the Old Testament, back in Deuteronomy, God said this, all right? And it was, it was the consequence of anybody who, 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 who was hung on a tree all right? how shameful they were, how condemned they were, how cut off from God they were. Listen to what the Bible says, Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. This is this is where Paul gets the quote. He says, if any man, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree. Again, this is, man, you, you take this verse and you link it to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now we see, because we say, well, the reason why Jesus had to get off the tree, uh, the cross was because of, of the Passover. And so, no, 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 we're saying, man, this is all a fulfillment of Scripture, all a fulfillment of prophecy. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you Do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. He who is placed on this tree. It's a symbol. It's a sign that they have been cut off from God. They've been cursed from God. Accursed from God. Cut off. And so... When Jesus dies on the cross, it was a symbol. It was a symbol of Him being cut off from God. That's why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's been, here's here is Jesus, all right? Here is the son of God. Here is God in the flesh, all right? Fully God, fully human. He's, he's, he's dying on the cross in our place. We're gonna talk about that in a second. In his humanity, man, he is just experiencing the wrath and the punishment and the pain and the hell that God is just unleashing upon him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You would look at somebody on a tree, you would say, Oh man, what a, what a public disgrace. That person, that person has been cut off from God. They died, a, they died a death they deserve. They deserve that. They deserve that pain. They deserve that, that punishment. They deserve all of that. Now, when we link that to what Paul is saying here is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That what he did on the cross, he, he was dying in your place and he's dying in my place because that, that's the position we belong in. That's the place we, we, we belong because of our sin and, and, and our wickedness. We deserve to be cut off from God. But God loves us so much and out of his grace, he does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And Christ became a curse for us on the cross. The cross is God's symbol of a curse. Lastly, Christ took God's curse meant for us. Verse 13, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, haven't become a curse for us. Notice the us in this verse. Christ has redeemed us. The word "redeem" here in the Greek, it means to purchase a slave for the purpose of setting them free. To buy back. And we understand you know, what, what God has done for us in salvation If you were here when we introduced the the series of Galatians and we talked about a slave uh, that has been purchased from one slave master who has been abusive and brutal and, and dominating. And the new slave master, the slave owner, purchases that slave Not for the purpose of enslaving that person, but setting that person free. That that person no longer is a slave, but a child, a son, an heir of the master. In fact, just turn over one chapter, Galatians chapter 4. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, not above the law, that God, 100% divine, 100% deity, 100% humanity, he enters the world not above the law, but under the law. Why? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as son. Here's that word redeem again to purchase a slave for the purpose of setting them free so that they're no longer a slave to the old slave master. But now they are adopted children. They're adopted sons. They're legitimate heirs of the master. It's a beautiful picture Paul paints. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. He says that we as believers, we have been bought with a price so I said, when you understand salvation, that by, by the grace of the Father, He's provided us with salvation. God the Son has purchased our salvation. You see, it's free. Don't misunderstand or mis- be mistaken. Salvation is free, there's nothing we can do to earn or work. To earn God's salvation, it's freely given. God freely gives it to us. It's free, but it's not cheap. Jesus Christ paid for our salvation. He purchased our salvation. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so God requires that if there's going to be forgiveness of wrongs, of sins, of transgression, that there has to be a shedding of blood. We can see this all the way back in Genesis When Adam and Eve sinned and an innocent animal was slain, God takes the coat of that animal and clothes man. We go over into Abraham, another good example. If you remember, where Abraham, God calls Abraham to offer his one and only son Isaac, the son in whom he loved, to go up on Mount Moriah to offer him there as, as, a, as a sacrifice. If you know the story, they're at the, the foot of the mountain, and Abraham turns to his servants, and he says this strong declaration of faith. I mean, I, I, this is incredible what he says, and, and so often we kind of just gloss over Scripture, but man, this is so important. Uh, Abraham turns to his servant, and he says, says, I want you guys to wait right here. The lad and I will return. That's an incredible statement of faith. Abraham knows what God is requiring of him to do. He is to offer his son as a sacrifice. He understands that God has told him what he was going to do. So just think about the weight, the burden on his heart, that he knows what he has to do. But he turns to his servant and says, I want you guys to wait the lad my son and I, we will return. I believe Abraham uh, believed that God was going to do one of two things. Either, either one, God was going to raise Isaac back from the dead. Or secondly, God was going to provide a substitute. Oh, we know how the story uh, turns out because they get up to the mountain. And um, uh, if you remember the story, Isaac, Isaac's got the wood strapped to his back. And Isaac, he, he's smart. He's a smart he's a smart. Lad, he's a smart, you know, we say lad, he's not a little boy. You know, he's a, he's a youth, all right? And he's pretty smart. He's putting all the pieces together in his mind, and he says, Father, uh, we got the wood, check. We got the fire, check. We got the knife, check. But where is the sacrifice? Where's the offering? Remember what Abraham said? He says, God will provide the offering. It's incredible. they go up, and we know the story that God provides a substitute. That an animal took the place of Isaac. We see this over and over again. It's called substitutionary death. That's what Christ did for us. He took our place. He substituted for us. By his blood he's purchased us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin, that's, that's Jesus. Jesus knew no sin, right? He was sinless. He was absolutely perfect. He knew no sin, but guess what? He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, what Jesus did on the cross is that he took our sin. He took the the law that was against us, all the wrongs that we did, all the sin, and, and nailed it on the cross. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, the gospel is not good advice. It's not good advice of what, what, what can we do to become a better person. It's, it's not that. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us so that we can enjoy the relationship that God desires to have with us. And I'm convinced many people miss that. They think Christianity is rules and regulations and got to go to church and I got to do this and I got to you know, watch, watch what, I, what I do and what I say and, and, and all of this. But when we understand that Christianity is about a relationship with, with God because what Christ has done for us is restored that broken relationship, that fellowship that God enjoyed with Adam and Eve back in the garden. It was broken once sin entered the world. Jesus came to remove that and restore that relationship. See, God acted in history to remove His wrath. Christ absorbed the wrath of God. He bore the curse of God. He took the punishment that was for us. Let me give you one more passage of Scripture. I want to close with this. Romans chapter 5. I want to write this down. This is kind of brings it all together. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us. I love this verse. You know, so often love love is, it's easily said. Many times we, we really don't back it up with actions. It's easy to say, You know, we love someone. It's easy to say, I love you. Talk is cheap. But for God, God says, Look, it's, it's more than me saying, I love you. At the, at the heart of who God is, he's, he's love. God demonstrates His love, He puts into action His love. How? Toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for who? For us. I love this verse because God doesn't say, here, listen, you know, in order for for, for you to enjoy uh, eternal life, in order for you to have a place in heaven, in order for you to enjoy a relationship with me, I want you to go out and become a better person, and I want you to kind of clean yourself up, and and I want you to, you know, w- watch what you say, and watch what you do, and, and follow these rules, and follow these regulations, and make sure you observe all these rituals, and when you do that, then I will love you, then I will love you. I will demonstrate my love no no before why we were still sinners before we got our act together God loved us that much to send to send Jesus Christ because he knew we could never do it on our own we could never save ourselves we could never rescue ourselves we could never appease a holy and righteous God Paul says, much more than having now been justified, declared righteous. How? By His blood, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. I have to kind of contrast this here real quick. So I know we think of salvation. We say, oh man, I got my ticket into heaven. I can't wait. I can't wait to, you know, when I die and I'm going to leave this place, you know, I've got my Jesus ticket. I'm going to board that holy, you know, train to, to, to the, you know, to the kingdom in the sky, I've, I've got my Jesus to. But when we understand what Jesus took on the cross, that he took the wrath of God upon sin, your sin and my sin, we shall be saved from God's wrath through him. It's not, the, it's not as though God just simply excused sin. Remember, God, God gave a law. And God said, the the soul that sins shall surely die. That's like a tongue twister. Try to say that 10 times fast. But the the person who sins shall surely die. God said that. Now, God, God means what he says. We've already established that. And so God gives this law and he says, listen, if you sin, you shall die. We die. We're not talking about like a physical death. We're talking about an eternal separation, an eternal death, an etern- eternal eternal uh, separation from God. Spiritual death. And when we understand what God has done for us in restoring that relationship, S- saved from His wrath. Verse 10, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Or as Jesus would say, no greater love than this, than to lay down your life for a friend. What an incredible story of God's love, that he would do that for us. Why the cross? Because God prophesied that Jesus would die. That He would be hung on this tree. That it was a symbol of, of, of a curse. But He took that curse for us. It was meant for us. That symbol of being cut off from God, He, he took that on our behalf. So that we can be the recipients of this freedom to just enjoy God's presence. Every head bowed and every eye closed.